Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. But um, today, um, we're moving on uh, in, uh, in, our, in our look through Isaiah. We're kind of moving rapidly through the second section as we've been looking at 40, chapter 40 all the way through 66. And today we kind of come to chapter 53, which I think is probably the backbone of this second section. Uh, chapter 53 is going to point to the suffering servant that God calls, and that suffering servant we know is prophesied to be the Messiah. We are looking uh, back towards the cross, and we see and we realize and we trust that Jesus is this servant that we're going to be looking at in chapter 53. But when Isaiah wrote this, this was still hundreds of years, uh, generations before Jesus would come, but pointing to the one who would restore peace, would restore order, would restore hope to Israel, and also provide peace uh, to a world that was lost in their sin. And so we all, maybe we're not Jewish, but we all are going to benefit from the words that we look at and we read this morning. This is speaking directly to us. Now, maybe words of prophecy that we believe have already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but there's also words of prophecy and promise that we find in this today that we still hold on today, even though it's 2023, getting ready to turn to 2024, because we have hope in Jesus, but he has brought us peace as well. And just like Pastor Chris was talking about with the kids, it's a peace that has already been fulfilled in Christ, but it's also peace that is yet to come. But we hold on to that promise. Uh, we hold on to that promise as well, too. So uh, we're going to begin by picking up in chapter 52 and read the last few verses of chapter 52 because they serve as kind of a, pres- a preface. Uh, how many of you, when you read a book, you just go straight to chapter one, right, and start reading? Okay. How many of you are the ones who read the preface and the introduction, and you read the table of contents, and you read the publisher's notes and all that type of stuff? Okay. I'm kind of that. I used to be a just go straight to that chapter and let's get going. Now I've kind of come to where I like, I really like the preface and the introduction. So for some of you, you may want to just jump in at 53 verse 1. But for those of you who like to read the full thing in its entirety, let's look at verse number 13. Because this is going to be kind of a thesis statement for the rest of the things that we're going to see in chapters 53 through 55. It says this, See, my servant will be successful. Now see, what we looked at last week was talking about a servant that would come and he would go through a lot. But he would, and there's a lot of stuff that he was going to go through. And today we're going to be looking at almost the same thing, but in more detail. But again, what we have to look at is the success of the servant. That while there will be suffering and while it will seem like there's failure, the servant of God that is sent will be successful. And here's why. He will be raised and he will be lifted up and he will be greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told of them, and he will, they will understand what they had not heard. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, thank you once again. We come before you this morning in prayer, and this time we are asking you, Holy Spirit, to lead and guide and direct us as we look into your holy word. Father, thank you 
that in an answer to our rebellion of sin, you chose to send Jesus as that servant who would redeem us. And Lord Jesus, thank you. We recognize and we believe with all of our hearts that you are that servant who was despised and rejected of all men, and you are the one who is now the cornerstone of our faith. I pray today that you'll be lifted high in this place and through this message. Lord, I pray as your messenger that you would hinder me from saying anything that could go forth that would distract from what you are speaking to us today. Holy Spirit, be our guide, be our teacher. Lord, we, we, we fall upon the word of the Lord. We fall upon your word today to be what feeds us and fills us and challenges us as well. Father, you saw your beloved son poured out, spilled out, scorned, rejected, ridiculed, and mocked, and he deserved none of it. But Lord, he took that pain and he took that rejection in our place so that we could have redemption. So I pray this morning that as we look in your word today, you will speak to us loud and clear, that our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our spirits will be open to what you have for us today and that we will find just what it cost so that we could have peace with you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And the church said, amen. Some kind of like a heavy prayer to open up, isn't it? Especially around Christmas season. But the thing about Christmas is it's so joyous because of the heavy pain that had to be endured so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have the joy of Christmas. And that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit this morning. As I said, in the text that we opened here today, it's kind of just a preface statement, but it really is kind of a tone change a little bit from what we looked at at the end of chapter 52. We came out of chapter 52 where we're celebrating, we're looking at the fact that the Lord will be successful in everything and the salvation is, is available, but we, again, are brought right back down to earth with realizing there's going to be a price to pay before all of that success and before all of that joy. So what we looked at today, too, is also the opening uh, of the fourth and final servant song. We've been talking about uh, those servant songs as we move through chapters 40 all the way through up until now. They go all the way through chapter 55, which we're going to finish today. We've looked at three of them so far. Today we're going to look at that last servant song, the fourth one. And this one gets really detailed. It really begins to outline and be very descriptive of what, the, of what the servant will do, of what the servant will have to endure so that we can have eternal life and so that we can have redemption. So um, <clears throat> today we're going to be looking at, and the title of the sermon is simply this, the suffering sermon, or the suffering, the suffering sermon, you all may think that you <laughs> suffered through this. Maybe that was a prophetic word, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. The suffering servant who brings peace through salvation. <laughs> wow, that, uh, that's, wow that, that could be telling. I don't know. You don't have to say amen to that one at all. Please don't. Okay? If you do, do it under your breath. All right, so uh, but anyway, we're looking at the suffering servant who brings peace uh, through salvation. It brings us back to the seriousness of this. We left off last Sunday on this high note that God is the victor. God is the one that we have our hope in. Jesus Christ and, and his sacrifice for us and his victory over sin is what we place our hope in on that first Sunday of Advent. But that tone changed here, right? He begins to look at a, a, a different thing. He's going to have to go through some stuff. The key verse of our entire sermon this morning, because today as we move out of hope, we look at peace. Well, how does what Jesus did bring peace to us? Look at verse number five of chapter 53, because this is kind of, this is the key verse. It's kind of that, that one that everything else is going to kind of tie back to. It says this, but he, being that suffering servant, was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. 
and the punishment for our peace was on him. Now, let's look back through this again. He, being the servant, was what? He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of whose iniquities? Ours. And the punishment of our peace was on him. And by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. See, the punishment or the chastisement or the chastening for our peace was laid on him. So by looking at that, do, do we assume that he deserves any of the piercing or any of the, or any of the punishment? No, he never rebelled. We're the ones who rebelled. We deserve the piercing. We deserve the crushing because he had no iniquity. We have the iniquity. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? He didn't deserve any of the punishment because he never did anything wrong. According to this verse, who deserves to pay the price? We do. But according to this verse, who did? He did right? He did. He did that because that was the only payment that could be offered to restore peace between God and humanity. See, God's servant, this is the first thing that we have to understand about, about how, how the suffering servant has brought peace to us. God's servant, the Bible says, would be rejected because of his humility. What's interesting about all of this is what Jesus has done or what the servant would do is that it was already prophesied that when he does this, most of the world is going to just overlook it. Most of the world is going to be looking in a different direction and looking for something else when he does this. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 53. It says, Who has believed what we've heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like, some, he was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. So Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel, to God's people. He says, look, God's going to send the servant, and when he sends the servant, we're not going to pay attention. We're going to be longing for the servant. We're going to be longing for the Messiah, but when he shows up, we're not going to think he's very valuable. We're not going to be blown away. We're not going to be in awe of this Messiah that we've been waiting so long for. See, because God presents right here a servant that doesn't have the kind of, that doesn't have the kind of like, you know, oomph or chutzpah that they would be looking for. Somebody would expect that a victorious warrior or a, a king of king, come, a conquering king that would come in to restore them would be someone who was strong, would be someone who was powerful, would be someone who was at least of a royal family. But what happens? The, the servant is going to come with no, no form, no, no, nothing really, to, nothing really just, you just kind of meet a guy and he's like, he's just vanilla, you know, he's, he's just, who wants vanilla when you've got 30 other flavors at Baskin Robbins to choose from? But that's what he says, the servant's just going to be Vanilla. Isaiah also talks about this strong arm of the Lord that should be revealed. And he says, who's seen this strong arm? Their, their idea of the strong arm of the Lord that the Messiah would bring would be someone who's going to bring power and is going to bring like, like, you know, just significance to their nation. But the servant won't look much like that when he arrives. He's going to be his glory. He's still going to come in glory, but his glory is going to be so humble and so understated that many people are going to miss it. And then he uses this illustration in verses 2 through 3 of a young plant that's planted in dry ground. Now, I'm no gardener. How many gardeners do we have in here? A few? Raise garden? Okay, so I'm not a gardener, but I would assume that in order to raise a young tomato plant, you don't put it in a sandbox. Is that correct? Okay. Maybe you can if you have a special anointing. I don't know, but... 
but most of, most of the time you don't take a weak, tender, small little baby tomato plant and put it in dry ground and just leave it to fend for itself. Why? Because what's going to happen? You're going to go out a couple days later and that tomato plant is going to be withered. It's going to be weak. And you're looking at it and you're like, you know what? I don't think I'm getting a tomato that I'm going to take over to the county fair and win a tomato award with out of this. Why? Because it's going to need to be planted in strong ground where it can have strong roots and where it can grow up bigger than any other tomato plant out there. That's what we want when we grow things. But here's what God says. The servant that I send is going to be like a small, tender, vulnerable little sapling that's planted in dry ground. It's not going to be very desirable. When you look at it, you're going to think, there's got to be something better out there. There's got to be something better out there. Why does he do that? Because we come to the servant through faith and trust in God, that when it looks like there's so many other better options out there, we trust that God is our best option. We trust in him and his promises, right? See, someone, what he says, the servant is actually going to look like this withering weak plant from the wrong side of the tracks, but when they were really expecting that their long-awaited king would be strong and beautiful and grand and majestic, and say he's going to look like somebody from the wrong side of the tracks. He's going to be somebody that when you go out to the sandlot to play baseball, you, he gets picked last. Or when you're, on the, when you're in the park and you're playing pickup basketball, you just kind of like pick everybody before you pick him. This is what the Messiah would look like to them. They say he's a young plant, and this is how Jesus fills all that prophecy. He says, he says he's a young plant. Jesus was presented not as a coming king, but as this weak, helpless little infant. The first time we see Christ in the narrative of Scripture, like as a person, when he enters into the world physically, he's just this little baby. And where's this baby at? He's not in a palace. He's in dry ground, right? He came from the tribe of Judah, which was not a big tribe among the people of Israel. He came from Bethlehem, was this small little podunk suburban town outside of Jerusalem. The only thing they had to their, the only thing that they had to really talk about was the fact, hey, David became our king once. But even he was a shepherd boy that was handpicked and you know, he wouldn't have been picked out otherwise. His hometown where he actually lived was Nazareth, which is completely the wrong side of the tracks. Matter of fact, one of the guys that ends up following Jesus laughed at the fact. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he's this tender young plant that's planted in the wrong soil on the wrong side of the tracks and says he has no impressive form or majesty. He wasn't born in a palace, wasn't born to a royal family, laid in a trough, wrapped in rags, to a newlywed mother and his stepfather who was a working class as you could get being a carpenter. He was despised and rejected of men. He was turned away from. And I'd say Jesus probably had that one covered, right? He kind of became hated by the religious elite because he challenged all of their legalism and he challenged all of the things that they were just blinded to God and what he was doing through. What is Isaiah was the result of all this overlooking and despising of Jesus? What do he say? In verse number 53, he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering. And it says, And we just didn't value him like we should have. That's probably one of the more tragic prophecies that we see here is that Israel, one of their own, rises up to be the Messiah and they didn't value him. And to this day, still have not accepted that Christ is the Messiah. But before we get too down on the Jewish people, we got to realize that the Gentile world still stumble at Jesus when they look at him too. Either they think, man, how ridiculous, how simple-minded is it to put your faith in a guy who lived and died 2,000 plus years ago. They think they're a, a large segment of our society today to think that what we're doing today is a futile exercise. They think it's just, it's just you, you're, you have to deny all intellectual abilities to, understand, to, to believe in Jesus. 
it looks foolish. And we stumble at it. Why? Because we don't value him. We don't value it. But is he valuable? Oh, yeah. He's the pearl of great price. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the prince of peace. He's the great I am. He's the Emmanuel. He is God with us. You see, whatever it is, many people still today tragically don't value Jesus for what he is and who he is. So the servant would be despised and rejected and be overlooked because of his humility. But the second thing that we see here in our, in our text is that God's servant would suffer and be sacrificed for us. Look at verse number four, because it says here that he's going to suffer in spite of the rejection, in spite of the rejection, in spite of everyone overlooking, in spite of the hatred from those who should have accepted him the most. What does he do? We see this word, number, word in, in chapter four, or in verse number four, it says, yet. That word yet is very, very important. Yet he himself bore our sickness. And he carried our pains, but we, in turn, we regarded him as stricken, as struck down, and afflicted. That first word, yet, there, that small little word, unlocks this gigantic door of understanding the depth of God's mercy. When we rejected him, when we deserved all the punishment that he took, he took it for us instead. He took it for us instead. Instead of yet, you could say, in spite of the rejection. Instead of yet, you could say, even though no one cared for him or valued him, he cared for and valued us in this way. He took the death that was ours. He took the pain that was ours. Consider what he did in spite of our rejection. What did he do? He bore our sickness. He carried our pain. And even though we rejected him, he took on the absolute worst of us on his own shoulders. The absolute worst that we could offer, he took it on his shoulders and bore that. Why? Because we couldn't bear it ourselves. And in turn, what did we do? A lot of people stood around the cross and mocked him. They spit at him. They laughed at him. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they patted themselves on the back, believing they had done God a big favor. But what they had just done was killed God's son. That Jesus deserved God's justice of death for falsely claiming to be the Messiah. They overlooked him, they rejected him, and they said, no, you deserve God's punishment rather than God's exaltation. See, he suffered without cause in the place of those who deserved the suffering. Look at verse number five. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Did we deserve it? No. Were we at enmity with God like Pastor Chris was talking about ago? Yes, we were at war with God and are in our sin. But what happened? Jesus came to be the peace. We are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord punishes Jesus or the servant for the iniquity of us all. Scripture tells us that we're born at enmity or at odds with God like Pastor Chris talked about with the kids. Over in Colossians chapter 1, it says this. Once... We were all alienated or hostile in our minds towards God and it was expressed through our evil actions, through our sins, through all of our, through all of our rebellious thought. We were once hostile towards God. It wasn't just that, oh, I just don't know if I can believe in all that stuff. No, what the Bible says is our, our inability or our lack of desire to trust in him was actually an act of war towards him. And it puts us on the side of being an enemy of God. But what did Jesus do? He came so that that alienation could be obliterated. 
See, that's because when Adam and Eve sinned, it was a declaration of war on God in our flesh, and the result of that war is death to all who stand in rebellion to him. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, what did he do? He laid all the guilt, all the punishment, all the justice on the shoulders of his son when he was on the cross. And he carried that away. Again, the punishment of our peace was laid on him. Did he deserve the piercing? No, he never rebelled. Did he deserve the crushing? No, he had no iniquity. Did he deserve the punishment? No, he had done no wrong. He took it all for us. And verse number six tells us that our rebellion was our own doing. We're like sheep. We walked away. We wandered off chasing after our own thoughts. But what did he do? He laid all of our sin and iniquity, even though we had not yet at that point asked for it, he laid it on the shoulders of Jesus and paid for it at the cross. See, he suffered and died to be the sacrifice for the payment of our sins. Look at verse number seven. It gives us a picture of Jesus or that, I'm sorry, I just fast forward and we're going to go ahead and just assume it's Jesus, right? But he gives a picture of this servant would be a sacrificial lamb for us. Look at verse number seven. It says, he was oppressed, afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate, for he was cut off from the land of living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. So this gives us insight into the injustice of the perfect and blameless having to give himself for the absolutely guilty and wicked. It kind of takes us back to something that, that especially the Jewish folks back in those days would have understood during the feast and during the Days of Atonement. There was an annual day called the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle blood, they would, they would, they would kill a, a spotless lamb and they would, <clears throat> they would sacrifice that to be a, a payment for the sins of all the nation, for the national sins. They would, take and they would sprinkle blood upon that altar in the Holy of Holies. And then they would come out after that blood sacrifice, after that blood payment had been made, and pronounce that the guilt has been paid. But then they would find another lamb called the pass, or called, that they would grab. So there was two lambs that were used, one to die, and then one that they would take and symbolically lay their hands upon the head of this lamb, being a symbol of laying the guilt and the shame of all the sins that have just been paid for. And they would release that lamb out of the camp and out of the city walls to just wander around in the wilderness and never be seen again. It was a beautiful picture of the fact that God, that once the debt of sin has been paid, the shame and the guilt of that sin is also taken away or carried away as well. But it took two lambs to do that in the Old Testament. Jesus was that lamb that accomplishes both stages of atonement because what does John the Baptist say when Jesus shows up to be baptized that day? He says, behold, the lamb of God, which what? Takes away the sins of the world. Not only would he pay for them, but he will take them away as well. Take away that guilt and that shame. And this is what Colossians, remember what it says we were alienated? We were once alienated. Here's what verse 22 says. But now... Jesus has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. As he carried that sin debt, that sin guilt away, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He just sees the blood applied of Christ, and he doesn't see the sin and the guilt because Jesus has carried it away like that Lamb of Atonement. God approved of this because it was the only way that humanity could be saved. Look at verse number 10. 
Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. So when people look at that first first phrase of that verse, and they say, what kind of father is pleased to see his son suffer in this way? Just like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we know what happens after that, right? He gave his son to be killed on a cross to be beat within an inch of his life, to have a, thorn, a crown of thorns shoved down his head, to have blood drip from his body to be the payment of sin. What kind of father is pleased to see that kind of suffering? And this is what many people today are saying. How can we still believe that there's a God like that and say that he's loving to have that happen? Here's how we understand this. First of all, it doesn't, when he says he was pleased to crush his son, it doesn't mean he got delight and joy in it. He was pleased because it was the only way that we could be loved. It was the only way that we could be restored. His pleasure was not found in crushing his son. His pleasure was found in justifying the wicked. His pleasure was found in justifying the sinners. Thirdly, keep in mind that God knows the ultimate end of Jesus. Jesus, God looked down and when he saw the cross, as brutal it was as it was, he knew that was not the end for his son. He knew that there was an empty tomb waiting three days later. He knew that Jesus, yes, he would be crucified, but as we saw in the very first verse of our text that we read this morning, he will be successful for he will be raised up. But he also knew that if that didn't happen, we would die in our sin and not have that success. We wouldn't have that raising up. We needed the death and the crushing of the Son so we could have eternal life. See, suffering would only be temporary for Christ, but if we die in our sins, suffering will be eternal. And so God was pleased to temporarily allow his son to suffer so that we could eternally escape the suffering that we deserve. And that's mercy, and that is grace that we don't deserve, folks. When we trust Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, he then becomes our guilt offering which redeems us and he delights when souls are saved. See, God wasn't being a hateful father. He was being a loving savior at that moment. He was being a loving redeemer. You see, our suffering would be eternal, but God chose the temporary suffering of his son in order to provide rescue for eternal suffering of his creation. So we have to understand just what God is doing there. So we've seen the suffering of the servant, looking at all the prophetic description of the servant, makes you wonder how so many people miss Jesus as the servant. We have to note this, that the suffering is not the end of the story. That's the beautiful thing. Oh yeah, it's pretty descriptive. It's pretty nasty when you think about what Jesus went through on the cross and what the servant would have to endure and not deserve any of it. But man, there's another side to that coin. See, God doesn't just end right there. He takes us to another side, the exaltation. So God's servant would not only suffer, but he would also be exalted. There's a shift in tone again in chapter 53 in verse number 11. It says, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he'll carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the rebels." See, the suffering of the servant only served to give way to the exaltation of the victorious king. That Jesus would suffer for a while, but one day, one day, victory would come. 
Look at, this is the idea that we see of suffering giving way to exaltation in the New Testament in verse number 2 of Hebrews 12. Look what it says. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, or the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, we see this. Look, the, tempor- the suffering was only temporary because joy came in the morning. Joy came on Easter morning. See, the suffering would be rewarded for his sacrifice. The suffering servant would be rewarded, and his reward would be that many would be justified through him. That's what it says in Hebrews. He says, the joy that laid before him was seeing the redemption of the lost. So he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and now the reward lays in front of him too. He says he's going to carry their iniquity. If you look back at our text again, look at it one more time. It says, by his knowledge, my servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Again, it's that picture of that lamb on the day of atonement that just takes our sin and carries it off. The Bible talks about it as being cast as far as the east is from. That Jesus serves as that lamb that takes that away on that day of atonement. He carries our iniquity. So the suffering servant gives way to the exaltation of a risen Savior. You see, the only thing that makes the cross bearable is knowing that there's an empty tomb three days later. The only thing that makes Friday good is knowing that Easter Sunday was coming. If it just ended at the cross... Man, we just come in every, every week to worship, and we just have a continuous, never-ending funeral service. But folks, we don't come here to worship a dead icon. We come to worship a risen Savior Amen. who is alive and well. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Holy Spirit indwells us who believe with power to share this message to a lost and dying world. That's the exaltation that we have. The other promise that we see unlocked in chapter 54 is that God's servant's going to restore Israel's covenant. This doesn't apply as much to us, but we have to understand what God is doing with his people. All the way back, there's this relationship. I keep going back to this. I keep looking at Israel so many times like, like I was like in middle school, you know. Man, I had a big heart. I just didn't know where to land it, you know. Or I'd like one girl one day and another girl another day and another girl the next day. I'm glad that I got over that right? My heart finally landed in the right place. Way after middle school, way after middle school. I had a lot of maturing to do before I got there. But you know what I'm talking about. Real fickle, man. Couples will come in, they break up one day, they're back together the next day, and they like, I thought we were going to get married. You liked each other for five minutes, right? Fickle. It's the way Israel is with, with God. They love him for a little while, and then they just get distracted by something else. They got this ADD thing going on, even though God is completely faithful to them. He always has his eyes set on them, They always have a wandering eye. They're always unfaithful. But what does God say to Israel? I will in no wise cast you out. I will not let you go. And again, we're reminded in chapter 54 that God will never cast Israel away. In verses 1 through 3, Isaiah metaphorically refers to Israel as, as a barren mother or as a barren woman wanting to be a mother so desperately. And he uses this example, and he says in verse number 1, he says, rejoice... Israel, in your childlessness. What is he saying? He's saying this and because we don't understand it as much today as they would have in their culture. But a childless woman or a childless bride would be a picture of someone who is completely desolate, completely lonely, and completely rejected. 
Because what would happen many times in the ancient Eastern, in the ancient Eastern ways would be if a woman could not produce, they would, also, they would probably be cast aside, maybe not divorced, but another wife would come in to replace that could produce children to the husband. And then she would be scorned and rejected and kind of put out there. And with no children to kind of take care of them in their old age after they are widowed, they're vulnerable and they have no hope and no help. And they're looked at as a picture of sadness. And in a lot of poetry and a lot of poetic applications throughout, uh, throughout Scripture and throughout Near Eastern writing, it's the, a, a childless widow is one that is looked at to be a picture of loneliness and sadness. He goes on to tell them not to have any fear or shame because the servant will make all things right and will expand them. In this passage, what it says is that God is going to give them children. God is going to make all things right, and they do that through the suffering servant, that you're, the joy, and you, uh, and the joy will be brought to that sadness of isolation and hopelessness. It says you're not, not going to be left barren. You're going to have children. You're going to have more children than you could ever imagine. Think about Sarah. Think about Hannah. Think about, uh, think about those in their old age who were given children. And then a covenant came off of that as well. And God is reminding them of the covenant that was made. And I will, not re- I will not forget the covenant. Look at verse number 10. Because he promises, not only am I going to provide for you, but I'm going to protect you. Though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. He says, yeah, we've been through some rocky times. Yeah, we've been through some rough times in our relationship, Israel. But I will always love you. That will never change. And I will always be there. There is nothing that will ever cause my love to diminish for you. And I will protect you, as he says in verses 11 through 17. He says, you're going to return to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And there's going to be a renewed relationship with us. And in verse number 17, he says, No weapon formed against you will succeed, and you will refute any accusation raised against you in court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants. Their vindication is from me. Trust in the Lord's declaration. How does this all come about? Because the servant makes all things right. The servant is what makes all this. It all hinges upon the servant and what the servant does. But now let's look what it does for us. We saw what it does for Israel in chapter 54. Let's look what it does for the rest of us in chapter 55. It gives us an invitation. The servant offers us this invitation. And seeing the suffering of the servant and the exaltation of the servant extends us an invitation to join into that exaltation. It's an invitation for everyone to find what they need in him. Look at, look at verse number one of chapter 55. Come, who? What's the next word? everyone come all come one come all from the balcony from the floor from the basement everybody come all who are thirsty come to the water and you without silver come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without silver or grape juice if that makes you feel better and without cost why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. He says, come everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. That thirst is the thirst of lostness. That thirst is the thirst of being dead in our trespasses and sins and not even knowing, not even understanding what it feels like and what it does to just to come to the righteousness of God. Being out in the wilderness of sin and desolation separation from God, someone who is desperately thirsty, kind of like 
the rich man who was in hell in torments, lifting up his eyes. He said, just give me one drop of water to cool my tongue. Come, all who are thirsty. Come to the water. It's a reference to the servant of Christ, the Messiah who is the living water. He says, come to the water and drink and be satisfied in that. It's like when Jesus told the, the woman at the well, he says, I have living water to offer you. If you drink of my water, you'll never thirst again. He says, come and drink, and one drink will satisfy you for eternity, living water. He says, come, you who are without silver, those who have nothing within or around us that can pay the debt that we owe. We don't have the currency of forgiveness of sin on ourselves. The currency for the forgiveness of sin has always been the blood of a spotless lamb. And we've already seen now that Jesus the servant is that lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That was two lambs in one. The lamb who died to pay the sin and the lamb who took the sin away. So you who are without silver, who have no way of paying that debt or doing anything about your sin, come to me. And I'll give you what you need to buy whatever you need. Your forgiveness has already been paid for. Come and rest in that. Come, buy, and eat. Through the servant's suffering, the price has been paid, and all are invited to find what they need on his credit. Wouldn't it be nice, especially with prices, of, and Kroger prices just going so high right now, and everywhere, everywhere else you do your shopping, if you just went in one day and said, and they standing at the door and say, you know what, you've been, su- you've been such a good customer that we are allowing you to shop on Kroger's credit today. Whatever you want has already been covered. Bro, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? I'm grabbing five carts. I'm not grabbing as much as my hands can carry. I'm grabbing as many carts as my hands can carry. That's the picture of what salvation needs to be with us. The cross pointed out and said, the credit line is open. You've been paid. It's been covered. Come, and all the grace you need will cover every debt of sin you have. It'll cover it completely. The other thing is, how many of you, after walking into Kroger and hearing that, are going to call the people that you love and care about and say, get over here now? Shouldn't we be doing that with the gospel? Come, buy, and eat. And there's an invitation there that to, for everyone to come to that. You've got to be going in, and when you go into Kroger and they say that, you're looking at, if you're like me, you're like, what's the catch? Right? Like, what? What's the catch here? I don't know. Nobody gets something for nothing. Ever. This is what Jesus says. You come to me. You're right. You never get something for nothing. It's going to cost somebody. But it's not going to cost you. It's already cost God the Father. It's already been done. It's already been covered. Just come to him. Put your faith in him. And that's the invitation. Come to the servant and don't miss him. In verse number three, we see this words. Pay attention Come to me and listen, so what? So that you will live. He says, pay attention, don't miss me. Don't get, let's move on from this point of not valuing me. See the son, trust the son, or trust the servant, and you will live. And in verse number six, we see this urgent phrase, seek the Lord while he may be, may be found, and call to him while he is near. See, Isaiah pronounces that a new covenant has been formed, not just with Israel, but with all nations of the world. The salvation can be found through this servant, and all the nations have to do is come to him, place their faith and trust in him, follow him. 
And that's the last point that we look at before we're done. Is that God's servant has to be received and followed by faith. It's wonderful to have this invitation to be given to us. It's wonderful that it's all paid. It's wonderful that it's been identified as Jesus is the one to follow. But what do we do with that? We have to follow him in faith. We have to receive him. We have to come to him. See, God can lay everything out on the table and say, come. But we have to, do, we have to be the ones that go. We have to be the ones that say, yes, I will come. I will come to you. I will come. Verses 7 through 13 basically tell us this. And look at verse number 7. He says, let the wicked one abandon his way, the sinful one abandon his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. What do we do to come to him? We abandon everything else. We abandon our ways. We abandon our thoughts. All the thoughts of, you know what, I think there might be just something else out there. You know what, I think, I think it's just a little too exclusive, exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way that we can have eternal life. This is what it says when it says, abandon all else and follow me. Like that old song. I have decided to follow Jesus. What's that one verse? The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Let the wicked one abandon his way. The sinful one abandon his thoughts and let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. Same thing. The world behind me. The cross before me. I won't turn back. This is how we follow him. This is how we come to him and we find everything that we need. We come to him and we leave everything else behind. This is one of the things that, that it said in the prophecy. It's going to be really hard for a lot of people to leave it all behind. But this is what we do to find salvation. All our hope is placed in Jesus. And when we place all our hope in Jesus, peace is restored. We are now no longer at enmity with God, but we are at peace with him. We are no longer at war with him. We have surrendered to him. We have said, where you lead me, I'll follow. There's another one, right? There's another song. Where you lead me, I will follow. And what we get in return is that God freely forgives us. He freely forgives us and he, he pays that debt for our sin and he carries our sin away. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's the hope and the peace that we look at. And here's the result. Here's the result. Verse number 12 through 13. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into song or into singing before you. The trees of the field will clap their, their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that you will not be destroyed. Ultimately, this is who the servant is. He's our Savior. He's an eternal sign that if we come to Him, we are forever His. We are eternally His we are eternally saved. So as we close out the servant songs this morning, we'll be kind of launching into something brand new next Sunday.
Here's a question. After four songs, after we've heard the very last stanza of this, I just want to ask a couple of questions. Number one, do you know this servant? This servant. Have we come to a place where we've abandoned all and followed the servant? If not, let today be that day. Are we overcome with just how much the servant has done and has, it has, it has gone through so that we could ha- enjoy that exaltation? So that we could have the cypresses instead of the thorn bushes? So that we could have the myrtle instead of the briar? I don't even know what a myrtle is, but I think they're down on a beach somewhere in South Carolina. But I'll bet they're beautiful, better than a briar. Have we come to him and are we showing others the way to him as well? So as we pray this morning, we get ready to worship the Lord. I invite you, if you've got business to do with God, if you say, man, I just, I know I'm saved. I, I know I've come to the servant, but I just haven't been following him like I should. I just lost a sense of just gratitude for what he's done. Look, man, my prayer is that we just walk out of here today having that joy, that rejoicing of just how good God is in light of how bad we really are, right? But we don't have to carry that guilt and shame anymore because it's been carried off by Jesus. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.